As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. It's good to be here. Good. And so today we're going to be talking about something called effective altruism or EA will probably start calling it because it's a bit of a mouthful. I'm going to say that word a lot of times. Um, I'm sure some of our listeners have heard of this. Some of them will have no idea what we're talking about. Um, it all comes because, as you people might recall from our episode on cryptocurrency, there was a, a cryptocurrency exchange called FTX last year, uh, which was run by a, a young guy in his 30s called Sam Bankman-Fried. And it, um, it kind of exploded spectacularly. Um, and he has now been arrested on suspicion of fraud. Billions of dollars have gone missing. Um, but it hasn't just, as we talked about with our cryptocurrency episode, hasn't just uh, struck a huge, thrown a huge spanner in the works of the kind of crypto empire, but it's also had a massive blow on, on the effective altruism community because Sam Bankman-Fried was one of the, the largest donors to, to effective altruism. Um, before we go on a little further, do you want to try and quickly explain or define what we, what we mean when we say effective altruism? Yeah, it's a term which I think goes back to a very well-known philosopher called Peter Singer, who uh, is a utilitarian, uh, very influential, one of the most influential moral philosophers of the last 50 years. And he uh, has said that we should really use our utilitarian calculation to guide all our giving. And he is... uh, prominently stated that he himself is giving a significant percentage, I think 30% of his income, uh, to um, charities around the world, but that we should only select how to give money according to rigorous uh, utilitarian calculations. So I think he came up with the name, uh, but uh, and some years ago, but I think it's, it's only really in the last decade or so that this is, has been taken on, uh, particularly by a group in Oxford. That's right. Yeah, there is. Um, there's a. There was a couple of philosophers, um, students, or kind of junior researchers at, at, at the University of Oxford um, about ten or so years ago who got really interested in some of Singer's ideas and and kind of captivated by the idea that that um, you know at heart it says all people are are worth the same, but the need is not the same, and so that the need for of people in you know extreme poverty in in parts of the developing world is much greater, and so our giving should be kind of ruthlessly maximize so that each pound or dollar you give away can achieve the absolute most it possibly can and so there's a few of these philosophers um uh, william mccaskill and toby ord 
um, at, at, at Oxford University who who started um, these these research institutes and um, uh, and private organisations which were focused on this idea of encouraging more and more people to to start not just to give money away but to give it in a kind of as you say utilitarian. Uh, maximally efficient, uh, maximally effective manner, which has come to be known as the kind of effective altruism or EA community. Yeah, and it's interesting how this has become very attractive to a sort of group of young, pretty elitist people. And interestingly, uh, the majority are male, uh, the majority are white, and they're highly educated. In fact, there seems to be a kind of uh, charmed elite circle of universities, Oxford University at the centre and then Cambridge and Stanford and Harvard. And um, these uh, young people are convinced that traditional approaches to charity, traditional ways in which money is raised and distributed uh, from the general public and by governments is very, very ineffective and that most of the money donated to charity is a complete waste of time. And so they're saying, we've got these clever new ways of thinking about it, and we're going to ensure that uh, we give money in a much more focused way. And But of course, it also leads to quite interesting ideas. So for instance, you know, some have argued it's much better to become a really filthy rich banker than to become a doctor because a doctor is limited by the number of lives they can influence. But if you become a filthy rich banker and then give money in a really effective way, you're going to touch far more lives. You're going to do far more good than you ever could do as a doctor. Exactly right. And that's really what connects it with Sam Bankman-Fried and, and the FTX, the, um, the now collapsed cryptocurrency exchange, which at one point was allegedly worth you know tens of billions of dollars. It was handling billions of of dollars of of, of um, cryptocurrency in and out, and Sam Bankman-Fried very publicly said that he was doing this. He was, you know, amassing enormous wealth at a young age, uh, in the most kind of quick way he could think, which was cryptocurrency, in part so he could give lots and lots of it away. And he was giving lots of it away. Apparently, he gave one hundred and thirty million dollars in twenty twenty two alone um, to to EA organizations and associated charities and institutions and movements, um, and so. It's his kind of spectacular rise to prominence and then collapse has really thrown a spotlight on something that was previously a bit obscure and and previously kind of dominated by kind of nerdish um, uh, uh, philosophers at, at elite universities. But there's an increasing number of of kind of the tech world and uh, big business and bankers and finance that has got interested in this idea, um, which is why we're talking about it today. Yeah, and so there are a number of organisations related to it. One is called the 80,000 Hours uh, Institution. And the reason it's of 80,000 hours is apparently that's what a working lifetime, that's how many hours you're going to spend in your lifetime. And so then the question is, well, you really need to choose what you're going to go into and what you're going to spend those 80,000 hours on. Are you going to choose a career which is going to make those 80,000 hours have a really maximising impact on the world. Um, then there's the Future of Humanity Institute, um, which is very much concerned about you know, what are now called existential risks. What are the major risks to the, the future and the future of the planet? Um, and these uh, organizations have raised very significant sums of money, millions of dollars over the last uh, few years. And uh, they've attracted some very high profile donors 
uh, very well-known names uh, who are who have given this a very high profile. And so you can see its attraction, can't you? I mean, you know, it, it's pretty obvious that, you know, I could go and spend my life, you know, in some very mundane existence, you know, trying to do good, but but wouldn't it be much better? You know, think how attractive it would be that I could live a fantastic lifestyle, make huge sums of money, and at the same time, do so much good. Hmm. And they've also created a, an organization, I think it's called um, Giving What We Can or, or Give Well or something like that, which encourages people to sign up to kind of commit to giving 10% of their of their earnings to um, what they say, whatever organization can most effectively use it to improve the lives of others. And they also have an organization which basically looks at charities and, and assesses according to the kind of EA utilitarian calculus, which ones are effective and worthy of your donations and which ones you should, you should skip. Um, so where it gets really sort of interesting and kooky is what's, what's called long-termism. So this is the idea that not only should we be trying to maximize the welfare of every person on the planet, but also we should be trying to maximize the welfare of future people who don't exist yet. And therefore, if you spend, uh, say you've got a million dollars to spend, and if you spend that million dollars maximizing the welfare of, of say, some thousands of people uh, who are already on the planet, then that's pretty good. But on the other hand, if you spend that million dollars preventing an existential catastrophe in a hundred years' time, which wipes out the planet, you've actually done far more good uh, by preventing a future risk. And that's therefore we've got to value these future lives which don't exist yet as they are just as valuable as the lives which currently exist. Should we talk a little bit about how they attempt to do these calculations? Because when we say calculation, we're not just using it as a figure of speech. They EAs literally do have algorithms and formulas in attempt to try and ascertain what is the best way to give money. And, and they use concepts like a the quality adjusted life year. Um, should we try and briefly <laughs> summarize what's going on there? Yeah, so it all goes back to Jeremy Bentham, uh, the philosopher who's close to my heart because he founded University College London, which is my alma mater and where I've spent most of my academic career. And in fact, his uh, the image of his his body was preserved. He didn't believe in uh, in uh, religion at all, and or the concept of eternal life. But he in, he wanted to have an impact in the future, and so he did that by having his body preserved and insisting that his body was brought out at. Uh, all future meetings of the University Council, uh, UCL. And uh, apparently 19th century methods of embalming were less than totally successful. And therefore, after a number of decades, his body was decaying to such a terrible extent that they've now put the remains away. And what comes out is a, uh, a plaster cast of his, of his body, uh, completely clothed and all the rest, and it is still the case that, that that sits at meetings of the college council. So you have all these senior professors and provosts and everyone else, and they're sitting alongside them. It's the plaster cast of Jeremy Bentham because it's written in the uh, it's written in the constitution. So anyway, Jeremy Bentham's big idea was that uh, every, that the purpose of life. Um, was to maximize pleasure and to minimize suffering. 
and that we could determine whether an act was good or bad depending on to whether it increased the sum total of happiness in the world or whether it increased the total amount of suffering in the world. A good act is one which maximizes the total amount of pleasure in the world. And then one of his famous slogans was that everybody to count for one and nobody for more than one. So that uh, that's sometimes called the principle of equal consideration of interest. Every life, every individual has of equal value. And so this led to the idea of what was sometimes called the hedonic calculus, that, that before you did any act, you had to do this it, uh, calculation in your head. If I do this act, will it lead to greater pleasure overall or will it lead to greater pain? And part of the problem, of course, is, first of all, is it possible to do that calculation at all? I mean, how do I compare the level of suffering that I've got with the level of suffering you've got? You know, is mine worth 0.5, whereas yours is worth 0.3? You know, and how do, is it possible to sum it up across uh, other people? And then the, the, the problem comes, what is the scope of the calculation? How wide do we make this calculation? Is it all the people I know? Is it all the people in my family, in my community? Is it all the people in the England? Is it all the people in the world? Uh, is it just human beings in the world? Uh, Jeremy Bentham was very concerned about animal suffering. And so he said, no, we've got to take animal suffering into account. So, so do we include the sufferings of animals uh, across the world? Um, do we include uh, other beings? What happens if robots turn out to be sentient? Should we include... The, the potential suffering of robots in our calculation. So there's a real problem about the extent. And does it stop at the world? What about, does it include the galaxy? Uh, <laughs> you know, the plot of uh, Douglas Adams, um, where uh, the world suddenly discovers that it's being destroyed in order to make way for a, a super highway. <laughs> That's right, yeah. In Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yeah, it begins with... Um... The world is is due to be de- demolished to make way for a kind of intergalactic bypass, and and uh, the the obviously the human character Arthur Dent is, is horrified at this, and the kind of de- demolition person can't really understand what the issue is. It's just one puny planet that's not particularly technology developed anyway. Um, well, it, well, doesn't it say? Well, actually, the plans have been available for you for years. <laughs> yes, for, for a million years in your local branch office in Alpha Centauri. <laughs> So you've, you've really got no grounds to complain. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the ludicrous thing is that there is at least a utilitarian argument to say that that's right. If, if the sacrifice of the planet could lead to the greater amount of happiness for other sentient beings across the galaxy, then, then it could be argued. So this whole question about the scope uh, is a real problem. of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And that's where long-termism comes in, uh, because, as you say, it says, well, let's not just think about all people or even all sentient life right now, but let's think about those who are dead and those who are yet to come. Uh, And so Nick Bostrom, who is the philosopher who's kind of often identified as being behind this idea of long-termism, he he famously argued that if you could reduce the probability of an existential risk, so something which might 
you know, kill all of humanity occurring within a generation, if you could reduce that risk by just 1%, that's actually equivalent to saving 60 million lives today. And then uh, if, if you take that even further, if you argue, as he believes, that at some point in the future, maybe in 100, you know, 200, 1,000, a million years time, humankind will eventually colonize the rest of the galaxy and nearby ones as well, then even a 1% reduction in the risk of human extinction over a hundred or a million years is the equivalent of saving essentially incalculable lives, trillions, quadrillions, quintillions of lives. And in that, when you use that calculation, you basically say nothing we do on right now in this life matters apart from minimizing the risk of a future extinction event. That's right. And and that uh, kind of reasoning has led to philanthropists to pour in millions of dollars into precisely those kind of calculations about how likely is it that we're going to create a super intelligent AI and that it's going to become malevolent. Uh, you know, all these kind of uh, work, which, which sounds like science fiction, the argument comes, actually, this is hard uh, calculation. This is the most effective way of spending our money to try to prevent uh, some terrible thing happening in the future. There are lots of other problems with utilitarians, which philosophers have been pointing out, you know, ever since Jeremy Bentham came up with the idea. For instance, if you take this strict idea of doing the calculation, it's better to add 10 new people to the world, even if they've got a very low quality of life, compared to adding just one person with a good quality of life. And so basically the most valuable thing you can do, are you listening, Tim, is to have as many children as possible, to keep having children. And basically you should carry on having children until the new children that you're adding actually have a negative quality of life. At that point, you should stop because you're no longer adding to the total happiness in the world. You know, and you think, hang on a minute, can that be right? But it also means that, for instance, spending money on people with severe illnesses or disability is actually largely a waste of time because you could spend that money much more effectively. You could you could get far more happiness in the world mm. uh, spending it, you know. So, for instance, if you have one child with disabilities and you've got f- five children who are healthy, it's much better to focus your resources on the healthy children um, rather than to waste a lot of resources on the child with disabilities. Um and this is where we get the idea of the quality adjusted life year, the quali, which says, you know, it's not it's not just about looking at, you know, I'm I'm saving this life here versus saving this life here, which you might think EAs would see as equivalent because their fundamental idea is that all people are worth the same. But actually, that's not how it works at all, because you say if you save a five year old um, who's a healthy five year old child, but is going to die ne- next year of malaria when they get bitten by a mosquito. Uh, you save their life by by giving them a, a malaria net. You've effectively bought that child's 80 plus qualies, quality adjusted life years, which are going to be quite high quality if they're young and healthy. Whereas you could, you could fund um, a treatment for a 90 year old who has some kind of unusual cancer and you could fund a huge cost, some chemotherapy and save their life. But actually, if they're going to die anyway at 92, and the quality of those two years, because they're old and decrepit and run down and getting dementia, are going to be much lower. It, you know, you, there's a way of assessing not just how many years you save, but allegedly the quality of those years. And that's why you can make judgments over what is the best life to save if you could choose between such a thing. 
Yeah, and this is a very real thing because the UK government uses qualies, quality-adjusted life years, in order to decide on the priority of different treatments. And what that means is that interventions at the beginning of life and with young people always buy vastly more life years than interventions at the end of life. And so when I was working as a neonatologist caring for young babies, we used to bang this drum endlessly because the number of qualies you get by investing in neonatal facilities is very high because we're, we're caring for babies Whereas geriatrics does very badly because the number of life years you you can buy. So now this is all very close to home for me. I'm thinking, hang on a minute, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm not dead yet. You know, I, I, yes, I accept that probably it would be worth spending more money on those who are younger. But uh, the, this is where issues of justice and equity, I know, they're, they're bigger than some kind of maximizing calculation. But but uh, to support for a second here, isn't it fair to say that actually you, what utilitarianism is trying to do, it might it might on some hard cases cause some unpalatable outcomes. But fundamentally, isn't it right to say that like we as Christians want people to live good lives and we want people to live good longer lives as possible? And so, you know, it might, we might be unfamiliar with the idea of qualities and EA and this kind of stuff. But what it boils down to is we want as many people as possible to live as many good years. Is that not fundamentally a positive idea that we can get behind? Well, I think in essence it is. I think the motivation is very good. And it's and certainly, I mean, we are going to come on to sort of Christian understandings of uh, and Christians who are promoting effective altruism. And I, I do want to respect the motivation. And actually, it's quite clear that Jeremy Bentham himself, he was a genuinely philanthropic um, person. He wasn't you know, primarily concerned just to make a name for himself and earn a lot of money. He genuinely wanted a way of using reason and and logic and mathematics to give uh, a fair, a just, and a, a society where pleasure and uh, felicity, as he put it, was, was maximised. So I think the motivation is good. It's just the unforeseen consequences Um of applying this mathematical process in a in a without thought. I mean, the reductio ad absurdum, you know, the the logical absurdity that it leads to is that caring for dying people is a complete waste of time, because by definition, you know, the terminally ill have days to live, and wasting money on trying to. Uh, help them when they have days to live is a complete waste of time and you should focus you know on the young who have many life years and yet you know again you say well hang on a minute that can't be right interestingly that's why care of the dying has to cut you can't use the quali um method that the government uses elsewhere it has to have a separate funding stream for care of the dying because uh the quali calculations don't work at all Mm. and there's a this is not just theoretical for him. I mean, this, he's, he said in interviews, in fact, no, he wrote a book, um, William McCaskill, one of the philosophers who kind of was behind uh, starting um, EA in Oxford. And McCaskill says he basically laments that he spent time in, in when he was younger working as a care assistant in a nursing home because he argues that someone else would have needed the, the salary he earned more and would have done a better job and he could be more effective uh, you know, earning more money elsewhere as an Oxford academic. 
uh, on giving it away. Or he uses another example. He says, you know, and this is be close home for you, dad, I know that, you know, when you were training as a doctor, you were seriously considering whether you were going to be called to go and be a missionary doctor overseas, probably in Africa. Um, and McCaskill says, you know, a doctor who does that, who, who a UK doctor who takes their training overseas might be able to contribute 300 qualities each year, quality adjusted life years each year. But if you established a well-paid private practice back home and you stayed comfortable in the UK and earned hundreds of thousands of pounds a year as a doctor in the UK, you could you could then give that money away and save significantly more than 300 qualities each year. So, you know, there's a kind of paradoxical uh, a pleasingness if you're if you're a slightly uh, uh, p- um, selfish person, which says actually doing the thing which looks easier and better paid is actually the most moral thing as well. Absolutely, and I, I'm I, you know I, I hope I'm not being too cynical when I say I think that's part of the attraction of effective altruism that it seems to um, <clears throat> tap into this kind of view that making money is is the single most important thing you know i've now got a much better reason for making money i always was interested in making money but now i've got an absolutely excellent reason for making money and that is uh effective altruism so i i I think it's unfortunately um and i think maybe you know coming back to sam sam bankman freed it shows you that uh that that there could be some pretty murky motivation behind all this it isn't necessarily quite as clear and transparent as it claims to be. And I think um, there's an excellent piece um, we've both read in The Economist, which we'll link to, which looks into how the the movement of effective altruism has become increasingly kind of turned in on itself. And, there's, uh, and as it's become better funded through people like Sam Bankman-Fried, um, it, there's a whole thicket of institutions and private companies and research um, grants and and <clears throat> a large part of the movement's fundraising is now not for you know uh, mosquito nets in Africa or, or or combating climate change and existential threat. It's about funding the movement itself because again, it says if you do the calculation, promoting EA and having more and more people become aware of it and sign up to the principles saves lots of qualities. And um, and so you now have the 80,000 hours we mentioned earlier on, which is kind of was a charity about encouraging people to prioritize their careers over what will make the most difference now says up there with choosing, you know, to work in in uh, in healthcare or in developing countries or combating extreme poverty. They now say promoting EA should be one of the I think one of their top four priority careers and, and, and investments because they they argue that promoting the movement itself is how you're going to save the world and, and i think an increasing number of people as as, as are interviewed and mentioned in this economist article are now slightly becoming disillusioned with the kind of self-obsession and, and inward focus by by the whole thing which has become unmoored from its original kind of altruistic aims yeah and another good example of that is that basically we only employ people from the top universities which is oxford cambridge and stanford because basically the brightest people will have the most effectiveness. And there's really no point in employing someone from Birmingham or even UCL, frankly, because, you know, second raters are always going to, you know, have second rate outcomes. So we're only going to focus on the the brightest and the best, which surprisingly happens to be people like us. 
Well, shall we draw it to a close for, for part one for this week here? Um, it's been, uh, I hope we kind of laid some foundations about what EA is. And, and next week, we want to move on to talk about Christian EA. And so there is a, a Christian effective altruism community and who, who, who argue that, that the principles of EA dovetail well with Christian ethics. So we'll have a look at that, think about some Christian responses and, and ideas around philanthropy. Um, but that's that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Um, uh, as always, don't forget to check out uh, Dad's website. That's johnwyatt.com uh, with lots of interesting things to read and listen and watch. Um, and as always, you can get in touch with us if you've got any questions or suggestions or, or things you'd like us to, to look into or disagreements. We're always interested in feedback of any kind. So please do email us, molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, uh, we'll speak to you again next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.